following message was recorded at River City Church. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read this scripture from 1 Corinthians 1.21. It says here, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren. We are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the best things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I love that first verse that really jumped out at me. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. I think that's a very good test as to whether we're listening to the gospel. And the test is, does it sound foolish enough to be the gospel? Does it sound foolish enough to be the gospel? So I want to show you this morning that the Holy Spirit is continually directing the church back to the foolishness of the gospel, for it still pleases God to save people through the foolishness of the message preached. And that foolishness still remains a stumbling block to that part of us that wants to boast. Okay? That's the old man. So boasting is endemic in the world because it's man's attempt to find life in himself. I'll say that again. Boasting is endemic because it's man's attempt to find life in himself. No matter how much a person claims to know about God or have done for God, if they're boasting in their record, then they're walking in the flesh, not in the Spirit. For it was the Spirit who said that the true Christian life is not of ourselves, that no man should boast. I think the two things in the world that lend themselves most to boasting are religion and patriotism. (laughs) If you think about it, um, Joe Friel in Fort Lane last night uh, said something which I thought was wonderful. Uh, he said this, Irish people are from Ireland, English people are from England, and Christians are from a country called In Christ. And that really got me thinking, you know, I love those very, very simple illustrations because <clears throat> one of the most powerful forces in our life is who do you think you are? Where do you think you're from? You know, And we see that even this week, there's arguments going all over the world from uh, Brussels, Brexit, Jerusalem, Dublin, Iran, all over the world, 
people are really arguing and fighting about identity. Who do you think you are? Where are you from? We're better than you. You need to be part of us. No, you need to be part of us. You know, even this week we had these two uh, processions of people who both draw their identity from two different nations coming into this place where we're drawing our identity from a new nation called In Christ. And that's a revelation, really. So God has freely given us that country to live in, called In Christ, but we can't enjoy that country if we do not walk in that country. I'll say that again. If you're a believer, you're in Christ. But God wants you to so enjoy being in Christ. And you can't do that, and I can't do that, if we don't learn to walk in the full dimensions of what this country is, this place called in Christ. Isn't it interesting how something has gone so wrong with the church and with the gospel that it seems to be that people associate being miserable with being in church? It's amazing, isn't it? You go to the local tourist office, they always think this, and, and you said to them, listen, I've never been to Derry before. Where would I go to find some joy? Who's going to direct you to a church? Isn't that strange? Let's talk a little bit about why that is this morning. How do we walk in Christ, in the Spirit, in the victory of Christ? Here's the lovely little scripture, Colossians 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord so walk in him. I want to use that almost like a a foundational scripture this morning. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, in that way, walk in him. Let's talk about that. For the church to begin to walk in Christ, to a measure that will impact this nation, I believe that we need to be directed back to the foolishness of how we first received Christ. I'll say that again. If we as the church are to walk in Christ to a measure that's going to impact all the people around us, then the Holy Spirit, I want to show you, is going to do what he's done with every generation. He's going to direct the church back to the foolishness of how we received Christ, how we first came to be in Christ. If we are to walk as sons of God, to be led by the Spirit of God, then we must wake up. We must wake up to how much we as the church have allowed ourselves to be led by the spirit of the world away from the foolishness of the gospel. Let me give you the gospel again. I'll give it to you from Romans 5, 6 and 8. I love this. Here it is. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps a good man, someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Now that is, what a gloriously foolish message. (laughs) See, to the world, that seems utter foolishness. To receive Jesus as your Savior, you don't have to be godly to qualify. You have to be ungodly to qualify. It doesn't sound like religion, does it? To receive Jesus as your Savior, you don't have to be powerful in being good. You have to be helpless to be good. You have to be powerless to be good to receive Christ as your Savior. You see, the spirit of this world, and we'll call that religion, points us to ourselves and says, God wouldn't be caught dead with you if you first don't do this or do that. But the spirit that comes from God points us to Calvary and said, God was caught dead with you. And he did that for you before you did anything. 
That's the foolishness of the gospel. It's quite incredible. Because religion says, you first. If you will first do this for God, then he will do that for you. Religion, you first. But the gospel says, he first. We can only love him because he first loved us. Oh, this is so simple. You have to be a child to get it. That's the point. You have to be a child to get it. Religion is you first. The gospel is he first. With religion, you're waiting the rest of your life for God to do something. I always say that. Religion will put you in the waiting room, waiting for God to do something. The gospel puts you in the throne room, wondering at what God has already done. See, religion is for people who are still waiting for a Savior. That's not us. Praise God. He is the God who first died for you and I. He is the God who died for you when you did nothing to deserve him. And because he's the immutable God, the God who doesn't change, then he is the God who isn't changed by your response to him dying for you. By either your good response or your bad response. He isn't good to you because you're good. He's good to you because he's good. That's the gospel. Now, as soon as people, by a revelation of the Spirit, through the gospel, see God to be like that. See God in the face of Christ, dying for them on the cross, giving everything he has to them, then they're set free from religion. You're set free from self-effort. Religion, the spirit of the world, loses its power over you. Because religion can now not threaten you, nor bribe you into better behavior, for it's too late. Because you've seen a better life. You've seen a new country. And once you see that new country, you can't go back. When you see how good it is to be living out from under condemnation. When you see how good it is not to have to live with a fear in your life. Have I pleased God enough? Is he happy with me today? You know, It's like these people sit with a daisy. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. That's where much of what's preached in churches leaves Christians in this day and age. Wondering, does he love me or doesn't he love me? What do I have to do to get him to love me more? Religion can't threaten us or bribe us because we've been in this we've seen this better country. We've seen a life lived free from fear and thereby free from grasping for more. That's all sins are, is grasping for more. So only the revelation that you have nothing more to get, you received it all in Christ, only that can bring a person into such a rest in their soul that they don't have to speak against people. They don't have to push and shove and grasp and put themselves first. They can go to the very end of the queue. They can be last because they know that in Christ He put them first. He lifted them up. What a great place to live in and to walk in. This place called In Christ. Praise God. I love Ireland. I love Donegal. I love what Leslie said. I love to see these surveys where people said that Derry is the best place to live or Donegal is the best place to live. But you know, when I went to India and went to Kerala, I discovered that they thought it was the best place to live. Isn't that right? In Kerala, they have this sign up saying, Kerala, God's own country. I thought, that's not Donegal's God's own country. Where do they, they got that sign for, you know? See, and it's lovely to be proud of where you live, you know? But the best place to be born in and live in, the best place to be from is a place called In Christ. In Christ. That's a real place. It's a real place. The things that you can see with your natural eye, the Bible says they're passing away. Thank God for Derry. Derry is passing away. Donegal, Kerala, sorry. Carol is passing away. 
But the things which are eternal, these things, the unseen things, these things are never passing away. And we've been given eyes to see by the Holy Spirit the unseen things. And one of the unseen things is to see this place called in Christ, to see people in that place, and so not to see them the same way. You see, if we have an ability from the Holy Spirit to see the unseen things, to see the eternal realm, then surely we must be able to look at people who cannot yet see that way and speak to them as who they are, as how God sees them. Speak to them as people whom God has died for, people of immense value, immense worth. And so when we begin to see ourselves like that, then and only then can we speak to people that way. Wow! You know, speaking to people that way changes them. If people are out there and they're broken and they're lonely or they're bitter, somebody has spoken death over them. Somebody has put them down. Somebody has destroyed them. Somebody has accused them. Somebody has hurt them. And that's the reason, that's, that's the way they are. I mean, words are the most powerful things in the world. You used to sing that old rhyme, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. What a lot of rubbish. Every person here is made by words. You are the person you are today because of the words spoken over you, good or bad. Words make us... That's a, that's a basic spiritual principle. Jesus said, my words, they're life itself. When you hear what I'm saying about you, when you hear my opinion of you, you will want to dance. You will want to run around the streets. Praise God. You will be lifted to the highest of heights when you hear what God has said over you in Christ Jesus. Praise God. And that's where that place is when we can actually enter into God's view and opinion of us. God's view and opinion is his doxa. It's his glory. To carry the glory of God is to know in your knower what God says about you and what God says about people. And it's almost the most beautiful thing in the world. In such a place, this place called in Christ, all things have already been given to you. And when you've been persuaded by the Holy Spirit that you are from such a place and that you live in such a place, then the security and the assurance and the peace in your soul that you have nothing left to prove before men and you have nothing left to boast about That just brings absolute delight, absolute health. And that's the last lesson that Jesus taught his disciples. Do you remember in the upper room? He taught them this lesson. John 13, I think it's verse 3, says it like this. Jesus, knowing where he was from, and knowing where he was going, and knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, he put a towel around his waist, and he knelt down, and he began to wash dirty feet. You see, so we can only serve this world like Christ and be Christ to this world if you're absolutely secure in your sonship. We're not going to affect your ego by going to the last. Not going to affect your ego by going to the back of the queue because that thing's gone to the cross because you have had a revelation. I know where I'm from now, you know. I know where I'm from. I know where I'm from. You know, that God had a view and opinion of me. He had an idea about me. He had me in his heart long before I was even born in Derry or Donegal or Kerala or whatever. God, I'm from God. I'm from God and I'm going to God. That's who I am in Christ. And you know what? In Christ also, everything that he has, he has given to me. Wow! I'm the richest person in the world. I can give everything away and still own everything. That's the revelation. That's how Christ walked. That's what he believed. We've said it so many times. That's why when he stood before Pilate, and Pilate said, I could take your life from you, Jesus effectively said, no, you couldn't, because I've already decided to give it away. Nobody takes my life from me. You can't take your life from somebody who's giving it away. So give your life away. That's what Jesus said. Well, if they want to smack you across one cheek, turn the other cheek. You've got two. They want to take your shirt, give them your coat as well. Go the extra mile. Why? Because you can. Because you can. 
Because in Christ you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Oh, it's a beautiful place to live called in Christ, isn't it? Don't have to fall out with your neighbors. Don't have to try and promote yourself or, or try and make your country a better country than any others. In Christ, you're perfect. And you're complete. And you have all things that you need. You've come to the end of self. And that's the point. Union is the end of self. The life of God is not a self-life. Because God never had a self-life. He doesn't know what one is. He's always been Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's always been in union. So God kind of helped you and I to live a better self-life. Because that's like sending the prodigal son money in the post every week to stay in the, pig, in the pig stand. Can't do that. You've got to come home. You've got to come home to union. Because union is the only life. Apart from union, there is no life. Isn't this wonderful? Now, how do we learn this? Actually, we learn it in the body. We learn it in the body, you know. Growing up in the family, God places us in families even to teach us, isn't he? Your families let you down. We get broken families and all sorts of issues. But that's the enemy. That's not God. He is the father by which all families take their name, you know. And he wants us to grow in family. Now, in the church, in the church, I have a perfect family, you know. Maybe we don't act perfect, but that's just simply because we don't know we're perfect. You see? If I'm, if I'm, if I'm not acting as who I really am in Christ, it's simply because I've forgotten who I am in Christ. So when you see Paul dealing with gross sin in the Corinthian church or all these other churches, when he writes him a letter, he doesn't harp on about stop that and stop that and stop that. He tells him, can I bring you back to the foolishness of the gospel? Can I remind you that you are in Christ, not by anything you've done or haven't done? Can I remind you that you were given everything? Because you're forgotten. That's why you're grasping. So can I remind you again that you're the very temple of the Holy Spirit? Can I remind you again that you're as rich as Christ in him? Can I remind you again that there is nothing that God has that you have not been given in Christ? Can I remind you again that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms you have been blessed with? Isn't it amazing, isn't it? That's what the Holy Spirit does. He brings that to our remembrance. He gives us a revelation of that. How do we walk in Christ, in the Spirit, in the victory of Christ? But what this letter to the Corinthians was uh, telling the church there and other churches is that an understanding of first how we first came to be in Christ, how we first received Christ, is the foundation for walking in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. In the same manner you received him, walk in him. So what we see in the New Testament is that whenever the church was in danger of living just like the world, then the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of the apostles, would always direct the church back to how they first received Christ. Why? Because understanding how we receive Christ is the key to understanding how we walk in Christ. So if much of us in the church are in Christ and not walking in Christ, not walking in the victory and the power of his resurrection life, it could be that we've either never properly understood how we came to be in Christ, how we received him, or we once did know that it was all by grace, but we have fallen away from that truth because we've been led away by the spirit of the world in the church. The spirit of performance. So I want to put it to you this morning that large sections of us in the church have, for one reason or another, we have fallen away from the joy and the power and the simplicity of the gospel. And I have a real burden to understand how on earth did that happen? How did it happen? How did we manage to so mix the gospel with religion that anywhere in this country, if you put a sign outside a door saying gospel meeting, people only see one word, religion. 
and they avoid it. How did that happen when in the first generation of the church, it was the religious who persecuted the gospel? These things were antithesis. They were the total opposite of each other. I have a burden to understand. How was it in Jesus' time when he ministered the gospel that the pub crowd loved him and the religious hated him? He attracted the pub crowd and he repelled the religious crowd. How have we managed to reverse that? How is it that we attract religious people and repel the pub crowd? I'd like to know that. But I have a burden also to share the exciting news that we're in the day of restoration of the gospel. God is restoring us to the foolishness of the gospel. The foolishness that God would give himself away to ungodly people. Not godly people, not good people, ungodly people. Locked, stock and barrel. This is a foolish message. And we need to get back to that foolishness of the message. It's such a, such a liberty of the Spirit to see, in fact, people change by this message. Because one of the saddest things is to see people who would send under a message for years and years and years and not change. I believe that there is great change in the body of Christ. And you might say to me, well, where's your evidence for that? I'll bring you two witnesses. The first is the Holy Spirit. And those of you who are listening to the Spirit, you know what the Spirit is doing. The second is my own soul. And the second witness has been persuaded by the first. Praise God. I feel a change in my soul. I just know and just feel a great liberty and a peace and a joy. I find it so simple to share the gospel. It's such an easy thing to do. You know why? Because it's not about me. Isn't that good? I don't have to go to tell people, well, this is what you need to do for God. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not one bit about what you need to do for God. But by adding that to the gospel, we have actually diluted it. Until you get to the point where you're ministering a message that has absolutely no capacity to change people at all. I've been really, I think, ministering in the church here, I think, for probably 23 years. And more than half that time has been as pastor. And you know, like you, and most of us have been in the church for years, I've had good days and bad days. I've had times when I've been really inspired and lifted up and times of great joy. And I've had times when I've been totally disappointed, totally disillusioned. And one of the things that's really, that's really caused me to question things over the years is, one of the, one of the greatest um, challenges and confusions is, how is it possible for people to sit under the message of the gospel for years and years and remain unchanged? Still remain largely unchanged, largely self-centered, largely small-minded, largely judgment and fearful. And that is just the pastor. Now, all of those words can be summed up in one word. Religious. How did we get so religious? I want to show you this morning that what Jesus said to Nicodemus, a sincere but very religious man, is true. Flesh can only give birth to flesh. The spirit is what gives birth to spirit. If what is constantly manifesting in the lives of people sitting under a message is the flesh, guess what? The message is of the flesh. They're sitting under a worldly message. Now in the modern church, when we use the word worldly, we don't actually mean what they mean in the New Testament when they use the word worldly. In the church, when we use the word worldly, we talk about worldly music, that old rock and roll worldly music, or we talk about, oh, she or he is dressing in a very worldly fashion, you know? That's not what the New Testament means. When the New Testament talks about worldly, you know what it's talking about? Religion. It's religious. I want to show you this this morning. 
It comes a bit of a surprise to us that the New Testament describes worldly as actually thinking or acting based on the basic principles and traditions of man-made religion. To put it more succinctly, self-effort. Any set of guidelines were purported to tell you that what you need to do to get God to move on your behalf are simply a manifestation of the spirit or the thinking or the mindset of the world. So religion is actually a worldly pursuit. For the idea that you can change God's mind or move God by behaving better appeals to the pride of man because it puts I first. God was good to me because I first was good to him. Now if we go to Colossians 2 and verse 6, just turn to that for a moment because we've been quoting this a couple of times this morning, Colossians 2 verse 6. I want to show you the verse, the full verse and the verse that follows it. Colossians 2 and verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Going on to verse 7. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. We'll just stop there for a moment. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How? Having been firmly rooted and built up and established. Can you see that you can't walk in him unless you have been firmly rooted, established? You see? Let me put it this way. You can't walk around this country called in Christ and so enjoy it until you've been firmly established. That, in fact, is where you're from. That's, in fact, where you are. I think about the promised land. You know, the Old Testament, of course, is like a a type and a shadow of the new kingdom. And there was the people of, of God, and they came to the edge of the promised land, and God said an amazing thing to them. He said, this land I have given to you. Everything in this land belongs to you. You know what? In the new covenant, we have this place called in Christ. And everything that is of Christ belongs to us. You see, in Christ you are healed. In Christ you are blessed. In Christ you are provided for. You are wise. You have everything you need in Christ. Now, the people of old stood at the edge of this land and they said, what does he mean that we have this land? We, we don't have this land because, look, there are giants in this land. I don't get it. Why are you telling me I'm healed? Why are you telling me I'm blessed? Uh, look at me. I'm not healed or blessed. Ah, you have to enter into the land. Now, in Christ, by faith, we were entered into that land. We were brought into that land. Nothing to do with us, you know. But in that land, you've got to learn to walk around. You've got to learn to enjoy that land. And in that land, there can be uh, things that we have to overcome. I always think that uh, for the people who entered the promised land, do you remember there was a large city called Jericho? First thing they, they came across, Jericho. They had to take that city, as it were, to be established in that land. And there were certain things uh, that, was, that was required to take that city. But what I'm saying to you this morning is, this place called In Christ, we have been placed in that place by Christ And we want to learn by the Spirit how to walk around and enjoy this place. How to just plumb the heights and the depths and the liberty and the freedom and the provision and the life and the healing and the health and the wisdom of this beautiful country called in Christ. I remember we had a pastor here once and he talked about, uh, he used to minister in a little village in Wales called Pennygrows. This is where the church sort of started. And there was a little old lady there. And uh, she was part of Great Britain, you know. She was living in Wales, and therefore she was part of the United Kingdom. And yet she'd never been more than two miles from her home all her life. 
you know. So she was in the kingdom, but she'd seen nothing of the kingdom. She hadn't seen a traffic light. She hadn't seen a roundabout. She hadn't even been to Swansea. <laughs> Never mind Cardiff. She'd been nowhere, you know. And many of us, we're in the kingdom. Praise God. You're going to wake up one day and find yourself in heaven. But you're going to realize when you get there, there was an awful lot more to being in Christ than sitting in church. And so the Holy Spirit is directing us how to walk in the fullness, enjoy this and enjoy it so much that the world out there says, I don't know what you're on, but I want some of that. I don't know where you get that peace, but I want some of that. I don't know where you get the ability to forgive your enemies and love your enemies, but we need some of that. This word is crying out for some of that. But we need to, as it were, uh, enjoy that to such an extent. You know, to such an extent that people will come in and spy out your liberty. <laughs> That's what happens, you know, when you start to minister the gospel of grace. People come in and say, ah, hang on, hang on, hang. calm down, calm down. You're not that free, you know. Yes, we are. If you're in Christ, you are. If you're in Christ, you have freedom from sin. You have freedom from the pressure to perform. You have freedom from grasping. Praise God. So the sins that religion are trying to deal with, they're just the roots, they're sorry, they're just the branches of a root called separated from God. And so believer, you who are in union with Christ, in your mind, if you're still sitting under a message that keeps separating you from God and promising that one day in the by and by you'll be closer to him if you do A, B, C and D, then in your mind you're still thinking separated. And that's why in your life is manifested the things that grow from a separated root. Sins. So the more we come into this wonderful union with Christ, the more is manifested in our life the things that come from union. Love, joy, peace, patience. Turn to your neighbor and say, patience. Just minister that this morning. Patience. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I want to read the next verse. Colossians 2 verse 6. Look at that. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted, now being built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed. You see, that's what we're doing this morning. It's called instruction. I need to be instructed by the Holy Spirit, by the gospel of grace. I need to be instructed as to who I am. <laughs> I need to rise up in my spirit and give my soul a good talking to on some of my worst days and say, come on, you, remember who you are? Remember who you are? Remember that beautiful story Ruby told years ago about, uh, this is years ago now, isn't it? About the aristocrats who were getting their heads cut off in France and they, uh, they grabbed the son of a king and were going to cut his head off. This young lad is about 13 or 14, but they knew he was such a good boy. They said, we can't just cut his head off. He goes straight to heaven. We hate him so much, he can't go to heaven. Let's, let's make him blaspheme God. Then we'll cut his head off. So they turned him over to a witch for several weeks. And this woman was supposed to get him to blaspheme God. And no matter what she did, she could not get him to curse or blaspheme God. And eventually they came to him and said, Listen, lad, get the whole thing over with. This is a headache for you and for us and everybody else. Why don't you just blaspheme God? Why don't you just say those dirty words she's telling you to say? Why don't you say them? Get it over with. And he looked at them incredulously. He said, I can't say them. Why not? I'm the son of a king. The son of a king doesn't speak like that. Now when you and I get a revelation in our souls... That we are the sons and the daughters of the living king. And you can't speak like that. You don't want to speak like that. You don't feel any need to speak like that. Why should I put people down? Why should I criticize people? Why should I compare one with another? Why would I do that? What do I gain by that? How can I gain more if I have everything? That's what the Spirit is whispering to the church. Bearing witness with the spirits of the church. Do you not know? 
You are the very children of God. When this gets into the church, the devil is finished. You see, he's already finished, but he's a liar. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. The truth will set you free to know what God has done. Woo! This is the best news in the world. The best news in the world. There's no warfare out there. The war is over. The war is over. The devil's been beaten. He was paraded naked down the street. Bible says God triumphed over him. Paraded him before heaven and earth, you know. The only people he has power over are those who do not know the truth. So the more we're led into the truth, the more we're led into peace and rest and joy. My goodness me. Anything that is based on or birthed by the belief that man can be like God, that can he be good apart from God, is religious or worldly. So the worldly view, the worldly spirits, believes that if you are first good to God, then he will be good to you. That's a basic tradition of this world. Good people get good, bad people get bad. Now we talk as Christians about worldly, and we'll not have worldly music, we'll not have worldly dress. But you know, this morning, right the way across this city, Christians are making out their Christmas lists. And they're making it out in the most worldly fashion possible. Because on your Christmas list and my Christmas list are all the good people. All the people who love us and that we love. I mean, nobody's got a Christmas list who've got all their enemies on it, have they? Well, actually, yes, there is somebody who has a Christmas list with all their enemies on it. God. The foolishness of the gospel. This God whose foolishness is wiser than men's wisdom. God's Christmas list. A worldly view of God has him giving to those who deserve his giving and withholding from those who don't deserve his giving. For the spirit of the world says nothing is free. God's blessings must be earned. But that is not the spirit that you and I received when we received Christ. Because the Apostle Paul said this. On hearing that the Corinthians were acting worldly, he said to them, you did not receive the spirit of the world, but you received the spirit that came from God, that you may know the things which are freely given. That's 1 Corinthians 2.12. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. What changes people is when people speak in the Spirit. Somebody spoke in the Spirit over me, changed me. You know? I remember people prophesying over me years ago. You were here, you prophesied. Lots of people over my life, down your life too, people have spoken of the Spirit. And something of the Spirit changes you, doesn't it, Michael? Just changes you, you know? And me speaking of the flesh doesn't change anybody. I mean, God can use a donkey, but you know, but he didn't die to, to, to raise donkeys. He died to raise sons. He would have us to live speaking of the Spirit all the time. But how can I speak words of the Spirit if I'm not thinking the thoughts of the Spirit? And the thoughts of the Spirit is what the Gospel gives you. So you can start to think of yourself the way Christ sees you and thinks of you. Then we can speak spiritual words. Then our words bring life. So a worldly gospel is a message about what you first need to do for God so then he would bless you. And as Paul goes on to explain to the Corinthians in that chapter, the natural mind can't accept the gospel because it appears utter foolishness. Because the natural man can only imagine a God like a natural man. A God who is good to those who are good to him. A God who only gives once you're first given to him. So a worldly message says, you first, then God. 
If you, then God. That's a worldly message, a worldly gospel. How many times have you heard that worldly message preached in the New Covenant Church? If you, then God. If you will love him, if you will serve him, if you will give to him, if you will be good to him and good for him, then he will come and bless you. Can you see? That's a message for a people who are still waiting. That's a pre-cross message. It's almost like a message that nothing has changed at the cross because we're still waiting for God to do something. Here's the gospel. God did something. And he didn't do it in response to your goodness or my goodness. Woo! That's called the foolish gospel. I'll say it again. God did something. In fact, he did everything that was necessary. And he didn't do it in response to your goodness or my goodness. The foolish gospel says he did it at just the right time when we were powerless. You see, at just the right time when we are powerless, Christ died for us. He did it because it was in his heart to do it from before the foundation of the world because this is who he is. He's the God he loves first and he's the God he loves last. He's a God he can't help loving because that's who he is. God is love. He is the Alpha and he is the Omega. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and give a son an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 4 and 10. So the gospel is not a message about our love for God. It's a message about his love for us. And that's why when we're speaking the gospel, it can be summed up as Paul summed it up in these words, Christ and him crucified. There's not one thing about your or my performance in that message. Christ and him crucified. And that gospel still scandalizes the world and continues to be a stumbling block to the religious, but it still saves men and women. The foolishness of it still saves men and women. So how worldly has the church become? So worldly that in this day and age, in many churches, that gospel is considered foolish. It's considered a foolish or a foolhardy thing to preach a gospel that's all about what God has done for us and doesn't add a wee bit of advice about what you need to keep doing for him in order to keep him being good to you. Your behavior does not make God good or keep God good. Oh, that's a revelation. Your behavior does not make God good or keep God good. Takes the pressure off, doesn't it? He was good to you long before your behavior changed, and he will continue to be good to you even if you stop being good to him. Oh, you can't tell people that. Sorry, I just did. See, that's the foolishness of the gospel. Because when people understand God's like that, they don't run away from him, they run to him. Because I've never found a love like that. If the gospel you're preaching doesn't reveal God to be like that, good enough to justify the ungodly, then your gospel is not revealing Christ, and so it's powerless to change us into his likeness. For it is by seeing the face of Christ, seeing God in the face of Christ, that's how we're transformed from glory to glory, into his likeness. For years I sat under a gospel that left me with an impression that I couldn't quite put into words, but now I can put it into words. I was left with the impression that God was more interested in my behavior than he was in me. The Holy Spirit now witnesses with my spirit that the love of God, the nature of God, who he is in truth, is not like that. I know in my knower that only a love that is not conditional on my behavior is strong enough to change my behavior. I don't need a worldly love. I need a love that is out of this world. And such a love came in Christ. It was such love that held him to the cross. It wasn't the nails. It was such love. It was an out-of-the-world love that held him to the cross for his enemies. 
for those who were against him. Now, if the church does not preach of such love, does not preach the foolish message, that God so loved the world that he shared out his life with them before they behaved, either good or bad, if we do not preach he first, but we're content to preach, well, if you first, then he, then we have watered down the gospel to such an extent that people can drink that message in month in, month out, year in, year out, and never change. They're in Christ, but they're not enjoying the country called in Christ because they've never learned to walk in it, because they've never been established in who they are in Christ. And I believe the Spirit is directing the church back to the foolish simplicity of the gospel. Paul wrote to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power of God. Let me finish by saying this. You know, it's great to have excellent facilities and excellent equipment and gifted singers and gifted musicians and gifted communicators who are all preaching excellent sermons. But in all our driving people to excellence, if we have left them with their faith and their excellence rather than the message, then we're no longer preaching the foolish message that sets men free from themselves. Listen to Paul give an account of his preaching style to the Corinthians. He said this, 1 Corinthians 2. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God, the power of the foolishness of the gospel, that God is that good, that he's made up his mind about us. There was a quote once, somebody said, and I have nothing against education. I mean, I've got a, I got a library full of books. I love reading. I love to study to show yourself approved, you know. But someone once said that when the church began to believe that you needed a degree to preach the gospel, then the church started to empty by degrees. You just need a revelation that is good. That's it. You just need a revelation that is good. And you won't be able to shut up. Praise the Lord. Folks will pray. Praise the Lord.